This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. At your Nutrient Ag Solutions Retail, we take seeds seriously. Getting it right for your farm requires the right knowledge. That's why we operate the largest retail seed trial program in Western Canada. Our local experts can provide you with advice for balancing maturity with disease traits and getting the best seed to your crop. After all, we take your harvest seriously too. Talk to your local retail today or visit NutrientAgSolutions.ca. Welcome everyone. My name is Dylan Shirley and I will be your host for this week's episode. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Maren McRae. She's a professor at the University of Waterloo within the Department of Geography and Environmental Management. Dr. McRae, welcome to Inputs. Hi, it's really great to be here. Awesome. How are you today? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about uh, some nutrient management on farm and uh, maybe with a, a nutrient that some people know about and talk about, but maybe we need to bring up some more uh, light onto this, and that's phosphorus. And when people talk about phosphorus loss and trying to management, uh, a big term that kind of gets thrown around is eutrophication. So Dr. McCray, could you uh, give us a, uh, an introduction to what eutrophication is? Sure. Eutrophication is when you have excessive plant and algae growth. And this happens because the supply of things that limit photosynthesis increases. So that would be things like sunlight, carbon dioxide, but also nutrients. So in nature, eutrophication is actually, it's actually a natural process. So over time, like over say uh, centuries, lakes age and they fill in with sediments naturally. But The thing is that because of pollution from human activity, we've actually accelerated that process by dumping a lot of fertilizers into these systems. So what we're actually doing, the process that they call it is cultural eutrophication. And so that's where you're accelerating the production within these waterways. So for cultural eutrophication, then uh, you kind of talked about that it can happen in water bodies and lakes. So what kind of negative consequences can happen if this uh, cultural eutrophication actually accelerates within those water bodies? Really, the biggest thing that's happening with cultural eutrophication is we really start to see these increased incidences of these blooms, harmful and nuisance algal blooms that are actually, in fact, blue-green algae or cyanobacteria. And so these can be pretty serious because, I mean, they're certainly harmful. They're they're certainly a nuisance and they're they're pretty nasty, but you can also get things in them, um, basically microcystin. And the problem with these is that they can actually be very toxic to pets and humans. So there can be human health risks especially when you have microcystin in the system. But essentially, when we get these blooms, we can have tainted drinking water supplies. Um, You can also really lose the recreational opportunities. But another big one that's pretty important is hypoxia. So hypoxia is where essentially the algae in the system are using up so much of the oxygen in their production that it doesn't leave any left for the fish 
And so you end up with these massive fish kills. So essentially, you know, it costs an enormous amount of money to have eutrophication happening in these large systems that are important environmentally, but also for, for humans, whether or not it's a water source or a recreational source or a source of fish, like it's, it's, it's quite a big deal. Definitely. I mean, imagine if your source of water that you use for your family, not only on the farm, but also to drink yourself is uh, tainted, let's say. So um, you work at the University of Waterloo and your research area is the Lake Erie watershed region. So uh, for an an example of how this can be uh, so consequential, can you talk about historically what uh, cultural eutrophication has looked like in this area? Sure. So Lake Erie is definitely something that captures a lot of press. And so it's, it's important to realize that it's been a problem for a really, really long time. I mean, really, we've seen evidence of cultural eutrophication since, since European settlement, there was increased production, you know, uh, as soon as people were were really densely populating the area. But we know that throughout the 1900s, it was really bad. And it was so bad, in fact, that in the 1960s, they actually declared Lake Erie a dead lake, and it actually made it into the Lorax, the famous Dr. Seuss book. They actually talk about Lake Erie. So what happened is that when David Schindler published a seminal, some work in Um, the 1970s, it really demonstrated the importance of phosphorus as being the limiting nutrient. So we know that both nitrogen and phosphorus are important to cultural eutrophication, but in large lakes, phosphorus is typically the limiting nutrient. And so because of that, there was a lot of changes in response to that scientific advancement. So they took it, they took phosphorus out of our detergents, and they made a lot of end of pipe changes to wastewater treatment and septic systems and things like that. So they they did a big cleanup and we definitely saw an improvement, but really in the, like for really more, more than a decade, there's been a re-eutrophication where these blooms are increasing again in Lake Erie. And it's really the dominant phosphorus source at this point is non-point source pollution from agricultural watersheds um, in the Lake Erie watershed. And so, you know, there have been really some recent issues. For example, I, I think it was either 2014 or 15 that there was um, issues with uh, an algal bloom where it ended up shutting down the, the water supply to the city of Toledo for a, a, at least a day or so. And, and when you're talking about a big city like that, like that's a lot of impacted people. So, so these, these, these extensive blooms are, are definitely something that is, is an issue that, that we've got to try to stop. For sure. And, uh, I definitely did not know that Lake Erie made a, an appearance in the Lorax. So that's, that's something I learned today. So I'm glad you brought it back to phosphorus. Cause that's what we're here to kind of, uh, pinpoint and see how we can actually manage phosphorus loss on our, our farms. And uh, I just want to go and talk about uh, what kind of things can compound together to create these massive phosphorus loss events on our farm. So uh, what kind of role does climate have in all of this? So when we think about how phosphorus can leave fields, 
it can um, it can leave fields either in a, a particulate form, so attached to sediments, or it can leave as a dissolved form. And the dissolved form is the one that we're pretty concerned about, especially because it's the bioavailable form. That's the form that the algae in the lakes like that's what is going to support production. So when we start to think about how climate might influence this, there's a lot of things that are going to affect how, when, and where that phosphorus is going to leave a field. So a lot of the information that we have about phosphorus has been collected during what we call the growing season. So it's rainfall, runoff, um, and it's not really, there's not as much known about winter processes. And so living in Canada and knowing the importance of our extended winter period as, and the importance of that snowmelt period in our annual hydrologic losses, it's also critical to our phosphorus losses. And so when, so really what can happen is that climate can influence the timing of your runoff. So whether or not it's distributed throughout the year or whether or not it tends to be concentrated with that sort of spring snowmelt period. And we know certainly in the prairies that it's overwhelmingly so. It's a little bit more evenly distributed in the Great Lakes region than it is in the prairies, but it is still very much that spring snowmelt period really drives things. And the more into your winter climate that you, or the more colder you get and the more snowfall that you get, the more pronounced this effect is. And so we often think about climatic differences across broad regions, like we might think about the climates in the prairies or the Great Lakes, or say something like Texas or the Chesapeake Bay. But even in the Lake Erie watershed, there are differences because as you move towards the Northeast, there's a lot more snow cover and it's colder. Once you look down towards the southwestern end, it's just that a little bit more moderate and there's probably, there's basically less, less snow and it's not on the fields for as long. And so that has influence over uh, how the water moves off of fields and the phosphorus and uh, what form it's in. Gotcha. So you're, you're talking about how phosphorus can I guess, move through our, our soil and, and kind of leave the farm. So that kind of leads me to think, do soil types or kind of farming systems that producers might use, can those also influence how phosphorus can move around? Absolutely. So certainly from a, from a soil perspective, if you look at the Lake Erie as an example, the Lake Erie watershed, what we tend to see towards the southwestern end, if it, well, the whole region was basically shaped by glacial processes. So when we think about the southwestern end of the lake, it's very level, clay, and then once you start to move to the outskirts of the watershed, especially as you move towards the northeast, you start to see more sloping ground and it transitions to more loamy soil. So silty loams uh, or, or clay loams. And so what ends up happening is that the way the water moves through those soils and the, the chemical reactions that can happen in those soils are different from what we might see in clay. And so this basically has an effect on how well those subsoils might hold on to that phosphorus and filter it out of the soil. So that's one thing. Farming systems, there's a lot of corn soy in the Lake Erie watershed, um, but certainly land management practices or land uh, farming practices are going to be a big deal. Um, certainly, uh, 
how much phosphorus is being put on the fields, um, how much uh, livestock versus cropping systems. Um, so yeah, it can definitely play a big role. Sure. And the one last thing that I, I kind of keep hearing about and, and reading about is uh, how artificial drains can also influence uh, phosphorus loss. So could you kind of describe what, uh, what people kind of mean by artificial drains on a farming system or maybe the kind of types that one might see and also how they can influence phosphorus loss? Sure. So, so drainage can take many forms, right? So, so drainage can be just simply ditches that are draining fields, or in a lot of cases, what's really prevalent in the Lake Erie watershed and other places, a few other places, is the use of what is called tile drains. And so these are perforated tiles that are buried below the surface. So in clays, it might be about two feet down. In loamier systems, it might be more like three feet down. But essentially, you're going to have these these pipes that are, are laying underneath the surface that are essentially going to dewater the soil. And then they would of course discharge to your creeks and your rivers and things like that. So why are tile drains important? Because we always used to think that the way to solve the phosphorus issue was to get uh, the runoff to inf to get the surface runoff to infiltrate into the ground, let the soils do their job and hold on to that phosphorus. And so this was the great, this was the thing to do. And so you would think that drainage would help lower the water table, keep that water underground. But the problem is that they found that in some cases, what can happen is that the phosphorus can actually travel into tile drains through something called preferential flow paths. So that might be a crack or it might be a root channel or a wormhole, but essentially that moves into the tile drains. And so what happens is that the soil can't filter out that phosphorus. And so tiles can become this direct conduit into our creeks and rivers and they bypass the soil. So the thing is that we have, because clays are so poorly drained internally, you need to drain them in order to actually crop them. And the thing is that, that you still need to drain certain clay loams, especially if they're, or silt loams, if they're imperfectly drained, but water, they don't have the same level of preferential flow or the way phosphorus moves through preferential flow isn't the same in those loamy systems as it in, is in clays. So, so essentially drainage can be an important pathway for phosphorus losses, but they don't operate the same way in terms of phosphorus everywhere. Now you're kind of combining how artificial drains and soil types can also just interact and almost have this combined effect really in how uh, a one particular farm or an area might be differential with its effect of phosphorus loss in a, a different area. So yeah. very, very interesting how that all kind of works together. So, yeah. So so what happens is that essentially in in the northeast it's it's a lot of a lot of in the northeast part of the watershed a lot of it is particulate losses associated with snowmelt and surface runoff is the biggest challenge and the tile drainage isn't your biggest phosphorus pathway but once you get down into the clays 
that's where the tile drains can actually be the dominant phosphorus pathway. And it, and we're, it's still particulate phosphorus, but dissolved phosphorus plays a bigger role and it's a little bit more evenly distributed throughout the year. And so when you think about these two endpoints, the Southwest and the Northeast, you really do have these different kinds of landscapes and the way the phosphorus moves, it differs. So the solutions to keeping that phosphorus on the fields are also gonna differ. I love how you're already segueing into what we should talk about next and maybe go on to a little bit more of a positive thing here and, and start discussing, well, if we have now identified that uh, we're losing phosphorus and we want to mitigate these losses, um, what are kind of some kind of conservation practices that we can use? There's a whole lot of conservation practices that are available for a farmer to choose and apply, but sometimes... You know, there's only so many things that people can manage to do on their farms. And so we want to optimize that they're doing things that are either going to actually make a difference on their farms. And we also want to avoid things that are going to have unintended consequences or trade-offs associated with them. So some of the ones that we talk about a lot, certainly tillage is one that gets an enormous amount of press. So no-till is, is, so if you recall earlier, I said that a lot of the phosphorus leaves the fields in surface runoff, and a lot of it is particulate um, in the particulate form. So absor absorbed to the sediments or soils that are leaving the field. So keeping that soil on your field is what you wanna do. So no-till is gonna help with that. So if you don't till your soils and you have residues that are covering the fields and the root systems and the more soil organic matter, you're gonna see less erosion. So no-till is something that we think is gonna work everywhere. The, the thing is that, and, and I think no-till in the Northeast, given that, uh, basically you have so much of your losses are in the surface runoff. No-till is probably the, one of the, well, it is one of the best things that they can do to keep that soil on their farm. So if you had to sort of pick one of your top, top things, I think no-till would be up there. And the more people in the Northeast sloping ground that we can get or undulating ground that we can get to go to no-till, the better. But in the Southwest, there has been a lot of controversy where they were talking about the fact that the increased no-till in the Southwest and tile drain land landscapes, there's been some research published to suggest that that no-till can accelerate phosphorus losses through tile drains and that this was an unintended consequence of no-till. But it's not the no-till itself. It's the no-till combined with surface broadcast on the no-till. So what happens is that if you have to apply your phosphorus on the surface, then in a tile drain landscape in the southwest, you're better off tilling than leaving it on the surface. So the best situation is to no-till with subsurface placement. Wow, that's uh, fantastic. Thanks for that. I mean, great tip of, of uh, trying to adjust and realize when to, uh, to really use tilling, I guess, to your advantage and for phosphorus loss. So and you, are, you kind of mentioned as well for uh, applying phosphorus and this, I guess, strategy of the four R's comes up, up again and again. Uh, can you kind of describe what those four R's actually are? Sure. So the, the four R's management strategy is essentially the right rate the right type, the right time, and the right place. And so essentially what you're trying to do is optimize when you or how you apply this phosphorus 
what you apply, how, when, where you apply it to try to decouple it or minimize from the runoff processes or minimize it. So you want to make it available to crops, but not runoff. So I talked about subsurface placement. So the idea of subsurface placement, sometimes people call it banding. It's essentially where it's put in the subsurface at the time of seeding. So this is absolutely the best thing for, for like, th this is really a good thing as far as the crop needing it and keeping it disconnected from the runoff pathways. So, so subsurface placement is something that, that, that the more people we can get doing the better, but it's also slower. And sometimes it's harder to get that phosphorus on the ground. So sometimes people have to broadcast. So, so sometimes what people do is that within their crop rotation, they'll put it with seed for certain things and then they'll broadcast with a gentle incorporation maybe when they come out of winter wheat or something as part of their system. So essentially putting it in the subsurface is one example. Another one has to do with the right rate. So just how much should we be applying? And so we know, and certainly there was some really great work done in the prairies recently by Jian Lu, where, and, and others, Helen Balch, Jane Elliott, Henry Wilson, where they found that in areas with elevated soil fertility, so soil test P, that if you could draw down those soil phosphorus levels to more agronomic levels, you would see a noticeable decline in your runoff phosphorus losses. So the higher your soil fertility, the more, more phosphorus losses you're going to get. So the first line of defense is really going to be getting those phosphorus levels to a reasonable fertility level. So, but where is that going to really make a difference? In areas that are highly elevated. Once you get down to agronomic levels where farmers just don't have as much wiggle room and they need to have the fertility for the crops, then this isn't, and that's where a lot of people are, then you maybe don't have as much room to move. And then in those cases, that's where when you apply it or where you apply it, those are the other features that you can take advantage of. Timing, really, you want to avoid winter applications. We know that. If you apply in winter, I know people are afraid of compaction and they want to get things on their fields. And the winter is a great time, you know, is a convenient time logistically, but it's absolutely the worst thing you can do. I know that in my PhD work, they applied uh, they applied phosphorus on one field, 10% of the watershed, and then we had snowmelt. And we lost more in that two or three week period phosphorus. We lost more than we did over the next 18 months from the entire watershed. Like it is just definitely avoid applying in winter. Um, and really the earlier in the fall you can get this stuff on so that it has time to be incorporated into the soil or taken up by whatever processes are at work, um, then I, I think that's ideal. The later in the fall, the greater the risk you have of it being lost to runoff processes. Definitely. One last thing uh, I just wanted to touch on is do cover crops help at all with uh, trying to implement them as a conservation practice uh, for managing your phosphorus loss? Yeah. So cover crops are this interesting, they're, they're certainly something that's being widely talked about. And we know they have a lot of benefits. There's biodiversity, soil health, organic matter, there's coverage. But there's been some really interesting work that has come out of colder climates like the Canadian prairies or the Nordic countries where 
when you get exposed to freeze-thaw processes and those really plunging winter temperatures, they can release a lot of that phosphorus and then it can be released to waterways. And so the problem is you have a trade-off. Although they keep the particulate on the field, they release a lot of dissolved phosphorus. What we've actually found in the Lake Erie watershed is that our frosts are a lot gentler because we obviously have the moderating influences of the lake. But not only that, we actually have a lot more snow cover and the snow cover is an insulating blanket. So the fact is, even though we can get plunging temperatures, the soils and the plants themselves don't necessarily experience that because we have so much snow cover. So what this means is that when you start to think about the Lake Erie watershed in general, I think at the end of the day, the cover, cover crops are a pretty good idea. But certainly in the Northeast, where surface runoff and erosion is your biggest issue and you have lots and lots of snow cover to insulate the ground, you get the wind as far as the particulate erosion losses without the trade-off because you don't get that dissolved key release as readily. On the other hand, once you get down into the southwestern end, although it's warmer overall, they actually get less snow cover and then they can get plunging temperatures. So it's a little bit riskier where your cover crops can get exposed to that frost. So you can optimize the species that you plant. Don't plant the tender species. Go with hardier ones like cereal rye or vetch or something that can tolerate the frost and then you lessen the risks of phosphorus losses. So on the whole, I think cover crops are a really good idea in the Lake Erie watershed, but you have to be a little bit careful, more careful with which ones you use in the southwestern end because of that risk of winter frost losses. Fantastic. That's great to hear. So now since we've talked about how we, we can lose phosphorus on the farm and also how we can go to reduce this potential loss, I just want to ask um what are some ways or some tools that uh, uh, an individual might be able to find so that they can actually test their phosphorus levels on their field? So do you mean their soil phosphorus or the phosphorus losses? Uh, let's go soil phosphorus. Yeah, so certainly testing, right? So agronomic testing is something that farmers are encouraged to do. And this is going to help them with their agronomic, you know, their soil fertility. They do this as part of their, um, for, for basically for knowledge on how much fertilizer that they should be applying anyway. So, so the more often that they can test, talk to a certified crop advisor um, in terms of getting, you know, in terms of appropriate testing methodologies, but um, essentially, yeah, you want to be able to test your fields and only apply what you need to support the crop's growth. And, and so certainly thinking about where in your fields your phosphorus might be elevated. Maybe you can think about applying, you know, there, there's opportunities for precision egg and things like that. Um, so, so, yeah, that's, that's absolutely uh, something that people should be thinking about because like I said, elevated soil pea and applying too much is perhaps one of the biggest, you know, one of the first lines of defense is to simply only apply what you need and don't apply extra. Definitely. So I really enjoyed reading your most recent paper and I encourage our listeners to, if they can go out and 
uh, read this paper that you just recently published. And kind of at the tail end of it, you proposed this five-step plan for reducing or managing uh, phosphorus loss. So I was just hoping that you could go through maybe a shortened or condensed version of that, but just that five-step program that you kind of outlined in your uh, most recent paper. Absolutely. So this, this plan, you know, this was proposed for the Lake Erie watershed, but it's really something that can be done anywhere. And this general approach of targeting BMPs or conservation practices to the landscape that you're in is something that can be applied all over the place. Just, just, it's got to be tailored to the specific landscapes that, that people are in, right? So essentially, we defined some phosphorus management regions by putting together soil, climate, land use, drainage, things like that. And so we sort of talked about this southwestern and northeastern endpoints and sort of these transitional areas in between. These are essentially a first cut. We need to further define them, especially those transitional areas, and, and further break those down. So I think that that, that there's room for improvement on these specific management regions. We then have to define toolkits that would be appropriate. So that doesn't mean that every farm is, you know, we're going to be able to tell you from this toolkit exactly what to do on your fields. This is just general principles that you can apply, but talking to your certified crop advisor or your conservation authorities or conservation district specialists can definitely help you optimize what you do. Um, we also want to extend this to nitrogen so that it's not just phosphorus, if we can also have nitrogen management regions. But once we actually start to define some improved catalogs to say, look, this is what's going to work here and this is going to, what's going to work there, we then need to actually have some field trials to validate this because we you know a lot of the work that was done in this paper was an aggregation or, or a culmination of a whole lot of studies but to actually design this toolkit and test if it actually is going to have an effect within these landscapes is 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 a next step and then then we really once we're confident in the science we can start to commu communicate this with producers to better uh, demonstrate what people should be doing. But it's also important to realize that we need to have adaptive management. We need to go back and forth and co-create this knowledge together. We wanna make sure that we're making recommendations that make sense and that are going to, because obviously what people do on their fields, it's not just about phosphorus. It's also about crops, logistics, economics, and we need to work together to optimize these solutions. Exactly. Yeah, we just have to work all together and we can slowly start making these plans. And uh, just before we go, Dr. McCray, I just want to know what's, what's next for your lab? What's coming next for uh, the researchers and everyone in, uh, that's associated with you uh, as it relates to phosphorus management? lots going on. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, there, there, I have a lot of unanswered questions about tile drainage. So that's certainly something that has been something I've done for a long time. But we're also extending this targeting of management practices to the prairies in collaboration with uh, researchers from the universities of Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Um, and also within the University of Waterloo, uh, Helen Jarvie is a colleague and a researcher in our department. She and I are working together closely to 
emerge edge of field work with what actually is happening in the streams between the land and the lakes. So what's happening, you know, from the time things leave the fields till the time that they enter into the, the Great Lakes through the tributaries. And so having a better understanding of the system as a whole. So there's, there's lots and lots of stuff that's going on right now. And it's really, really exciting. I mean, that sounds all very exciting. And hopefully when uh, those projects and those papers come out, we can uh, talk again and we can get an update on all the wonderful research that you are doing at, at Waterloo. Right. So, I look forward to it. I want to thank you uh, for joining me today. And uh, just before we go, where can people find you? Well, one really easy way is Twitter. So I'm Marin M uh, or email is great. Um, that's probably the easiest way to find me. Great. Well, this was another episode of Inputs. And today I was joined by Dr. Mary McRae, professor at the University of Waterloo. Thank you, Dr. McRae. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To catch up on all of our other episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts.